Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And we're into May 2019, and I don't know where you are in the world. I know uh, some of the people who listen to this podcast are in New Zealand, where I am, and which means it's autumn. Uh, But many of you are in different parts of the world, uh, all over the place, in fact. Uh, Some of you I can see through, you know, all of those online statistics that I get um, in the U.S., in particular in the U.S. and Texas. So shout out to my Texans. Where you at? Texas, I guess. That's the answer to that question. Um, And in fact, all around the world, through Europe and all sorts of interesting places. So hello out there. It's autumn here. And that means probably over the next few months, it's much more likely to be raining when I'm recording this podcast, which gives us the opportunity for this podcast not only to be informative, interesting conversations about faith, spirituality, uh, and so on, but also mindfulness as you listen to the steady stream of uh, lovely rain falling upon the roof of our house. Anyway, it's not raining right this second, but it could at any moment. So I'm just giving you a heads up that it's totally intentional. If that happens, that is the way this is supposed to go. Uh, It's all a part of the layered experience of listening to In The Shift. Anyway... Uh, thanks again for listening and especially to those in recent times who have been emailing me and sharing thoughts and comments and suggestions or asking for clarification on certain things that I've said. I really appreciate all of that correspondence, so keep that coming in. It's great to engage and to hear the kinds of things that are coming up for people as they are listening along. And um, so far this year in the podcast, if you've been listening to the last six or seven, maybe eight episodes, I've been talking through a whole range of topics that really centre around the way we think about God. Uh, We've talked about our language for God, uh, the metaphors we use to image or imagine God, about the violence in the Christian scripture and what to do with this and how that affects the way we see and understand God and what God is like. We've talked about the idea of hell and how that idea, especially within certain aspects of the Christian tradition that hold to this view, of hell as some kind of endless torment for unbelievers, how this can do so much damage to our view of God, to the story of Jesus, and perhaps more importantly, even to that, to our view of those with whom we disagree and to our fellow human creatures. So that's kind of what we've been talking about. And then last time we began talking about the death of Jesus, this Jesus figure who sits at the heart of the Christian tradition of which I have grown up and spent my life, Uh, one whose death occurs on a Roman cross. And the cross is this peculiar icon that sits at the heart of the Christian faith. Um, And so this conversation I think is important because obviously I think it's important. Here I am talking about it. But I would argue, and and I did already a little bit in, in in the previous episode, that the cross in many ways is a symbol of the futility and brokenness of the human tendency towards dehumanization and towards violence to one another. Uh, And yet sometimes the way Christians have understood this event, you know, is one in which God needs Jesus to die in order to have his demands for blood sacrifice met. I think it's provoked anxiety, actually, and questions about who God is and what God is like and even what it means to be human instead of being a resistance against our tendency towards dehumanization and violence. uh, Sometimes it's been seen uh, as another participation in that, but this time by God. So last time what I suggested, if you haven't listened to it, is that there are some problems with seeing the meaning of this kind of Jesus event as a sacrifice to meet God's demand for justice, for which he requires, you know, some kind of innocent blood. And that instead, perhaps one of the things that's going on in this story is in fact a rejection 
of sacrifice as a means of approval by the divine powers. That God, whatever we might mean by that term, and I don't know where you're at with that term itself, but that God is not demanding blood. In fact, for God to do so is simply to participate in this ongoing cycle of human violence which we are caught up in, and we are the ones in in many respects who have made these connections uh, for thousands of years between God or the gods and then violence and blood sacrifice. And so instead of buying into that system, the death of Jesus can be understood, I think, as a radical intervention into that story, an interruption, a rejection of viewing God that way. So I want to continue this conversation about the meaning of Jesus' death in this episode by talking about the idea of divine solidarity. And then in the next episode, which will be the last in this little trilogy, we'll talk about the story of Easter as the subversion of power. So this is episode 15 of In the Shift. Let's get into it. So this episode is called The Cross and Divine Solidarity. And where the conversation is heading is towards this idea that in this Jesus story, uh, we see throughout it and then most clearly towards the end, the climax of the story, which is actually in his execution, we see this sense of divine solidarity with our human experience. And in particular, in our experience of pain and of absence and even of death itself. Um, So that's where we're heading. But to get there, I first want to move backward and look at some emerging ideas about God and even about the death of God in modern Western society and see that how then this might connect us back to the story of the death of Jesus. So uh, that's what we're going to do and we'll see how we go. So um, if we're thinking about Western civilization and Western culture, especially pre-modernity, so we're talking about up to the 1600s around or the 16th century, around that time, really in, in Western civilization, Western culture, God is a given and in particular a certain version of the Christian God was, generally speaking, um, in most respects, assumed by most people to be uh, the way of understanding God and therefore of understanding reality. And so Western civilization itself had been uh, profoundly shaped by the spread of Christianity, but then obviously by also the uh, merging of Christianity with empire and with political power and so on. And so although, you know, many facets of this understanding of God that was present in the Western world at this time, I might argue, is not necessarily reflective of the Christian story, particularly when we conceive of God as some primarily masculine uh, old dude hanging out in the heavens somewhere. Nevertheless, uh, this idea of God uh, provided a sense of foundation for Western society, and in many respects, Western society was built upon these ideas about God and what this meant then for humans and for our relationships and for our ethics and our societies and so on. Now, we could critique all of that and have a discussion about all of that, but that's not really what I want to do in this particular episode. But it's interesting and important to observe the fact that that simply is the case at this point in time. And then with the advent of modernity and the Enlightenment, which is really 1600s onwards, uh, you know, we find that science and philosophy and other disciplines begin to really unravel or to unpick some of these assumed beliefs about God and and also about the nature of reality and then of humanity as well. And um, so we have this onset of the scientific method, for example, which begins uh, not with some set of assumptions about divine causation, 
but actually um, with doubt, with skepticism, with saying actually let's bring it back to what we can prove and what we can demonstrate and what we can know through empirical data, through um, through doubting everything unless we can prove it through that kind of um, scientific hypothesis and testing and, and evidence-based uh, research. So um, that kind of scientific method uh, begins to explain things that previously have been explained by God. So whereas perhaps it rains because God wants it to rain, and maybe you pleased God because you needed the rain and so it rained, or you didn't please God and you didn't want it and God was upset, or however you might have conceived of the, some kind of spiritual, supernatural uh, causation behind the weather, scientific method begins to figure out what's in fact causing the weather. Um, now, in the case of the weather, maybe that's not too disruptive, but especially in the case of evolutionary theory as it emerged with Darwin, um, this really brought into question some of the fundamental assumptions that assumptions that certain kinds of Christians are made about their view of God and about a human and about human creatures, and while evolutionary theory has since been demonstrated to largely be um, a robust and very likely way for explaining how life comes to be in the forms that we see it now, um, at the time, this is a, a fundamental reshaping of the conversation about God's involvement in the world. And many Christians, of course, as you'll know, struggle with that idea. So uh, you're seeing this unraveling and un unpicking of really the need for God to explain all of these things that previously perhaps we couldn't explain or previously we thought, oh, it's obviously just clear that God created everything the way that it is. Um, even that thing itself begins to be unpicked and unraveled uh, in this period of time. What you get alongside that is also the rise of historical method in, in, in the more modern sense, historical critical analysis, uh, and looking at the biblical text and being able to challenge it and instead of just taking it as an authoritative norm as the church had done in the West for centuries and centuries, uh, now people begin to question it, to prod it, to poke it, to say, well, um, well how, can we, how can we know that this is in fact uh, true and authoritative, uh, especially when we're coming up with its other conclusions through other means that we can uh, clearly demonstrate. So... This is really the rise of, if you like, a different vision of the world. And it's this kind of change um, which whether you think it's good change or bad change is not really the point of this conversation as much as to say it's change and we must pay attention to it. And what we see here is the emergence of this autonomous, independent human self within modern Western society. Uh, and, and this emerging way of seeing the world really helps to contribute to the famous observation of uh, the philosopher Nietzsche, that God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Well, this is Nietzsche's character, the madman, who runs into the town square and makes this claim uh, in in Nietzsche's writings. Now, for Nietzsche, this is not some anti-religious rhetoric necessarily, as much as it was naming a reality that he could see unfolding. And I think Nietzsche understood that there were serious implications to this idea the world as it had been known in the West had been built upon the ethics and ideals that moved outward from certain ideas about God. So the death of God, and in other words, really the realization that in fact perhaps there was no God, could result in ethical and social catastrophe. This is actually one of the insights of Nietzsche. 
Uh, and much of his writing is dealing with possible responses then to the death of God. And it seems that in many ways his response is that it's likely to lead to some kind of nihilism and chaos for a time. Uh, so Nietzsche's solution to this is that what needs to emerge is man's capacity to use will to shape his own future, you know. So the will to power, which is central to Nietzsche's um, solution, which can, of course, be abused, but should be used to shape one's own future in a positive sense as some kind of act of self-overcoming. Uh, so this kind of this movement, which we don't just see in Nietzsche, we see in a number of philosophers then in the late uh, 19th into, into the 20th century, uh, this movement towards a recognition that it perhaps, in fact, uh, what we believed about God, we can no, we should no longer believe uh, that God is dead in that sense. Uh, this is a really critical transition in Western society and in Western thinking uh, that begins with the philosophers and then finds its way through into um, all, all arenas of Western um, notions of reality. So, a typical Christian response to Nietzsche that I've encountered and that I've experienced in my, in my own life at times is really is sometimes to accuse him of sort of glorying in the death of God. You know, Nietzsche is seen as the enemy of faith or the enemy of religion, but I don't, I don't think that's really necessarily a fair reading of him. Um, but many religious people, I think, also want to defend ideas about God in response. They want many Christians, for example, want to say, "No, Nietzsche, God is not dead. God is alive. God is real." Uh, your rejection of God is unwarranted. Um, and so that's been, in some sense, the debate of the mid to late 20th century and into the 21st century is this ongoing conversation between religious folks saying uh, God is alive and real and the rejection of God is a problem. And then the rise of those who are either agnostic or atheist in their viewpoint to say, um, well, actually, we don't believe in God. Now, that's a new kind of conversation, in fact, because in the ancient world, People tended not to be atheist in that sense. Uh, everybody believed in gods of some kind. So it's important to note that this is uh, this kind of conversation that we find ourselves in the middle of now is is kind of novel in some kind of sense. Now, instead of in this episode wanting to join in with the religious rejection of Nietzsche, I also don't want to necessarily agree with all of Nietzsche's conclusions and solutions, because I think there's some real problems with the notion of will to power. But there is this sense in which the Christian faith at its heart, I think, is this weird and mysterious embrace of this idea of the death of God, even though that's not all we might want to say about it. And I think certainly we should, or at least we can agree with Nietzsche and with Marx and with others, that belief in the Christian God, along with other religious constructs, especially when God is conceived of as a being up there somewhere, who's managing things, who's controlling things, and who one day will reward you in eternity, that this kind of view of God has been used as a means to manipulate and manage and control people. And Marx, you know, famously saw religion as the opiate of the masses, you know, essentially powerful people using religious ideas to manipulate the poor and the weak, to keep them happy with the status quo, to keep them in their position in life so that they don't disrupt the system which might overthrow the powerful and the rich. Now, whether or not you are a Marxist, I think you might be able to acknowledge, should be able to acknowledge, that there's, there's genuine insight in this critique of religion and the way at which it functions and has functioned within certain communities. It's not the whole story. It's not the whole way of describing what religion and spirituality and faith does for people. But it is clear that that has happened and continues to happen. 
And so there's certainly plenty of truth, I think, in this insight and in this critique. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the response has to be to throw up our hands and say, well, okay, God is dead, the whole thing's a mess, it's broken, it's stuffed, let's just walk away from the entire thing. Instead, perhaps the possibility is to lean further into this idea of the death of God. And really, I think one of the questions that comes out of the Easter story, the Jesus story, and the journey towards the cross for Jesus, is the question, what does it mean to have a religious tradition which is in fact, I think, understood rightly, centred around the death of God? So in many ways, I think this kind of theology perhaps agrees with some of these critiques of Christian religion. But the response, I don't think, is a complete denial of what we name as God, but it might be a reevaluation of what uh, Christianity is about and of what the Christian faith might uh, need to say about God. And so, as I said, the Christian story is that at least in some sense, God does die on the cross with Christ. Now, the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann suggests that the cross event, this execution moment, of Jesus invites us to reflect on the idea that Christianity is not really supposed to be just another religious system offering us solutions and rewards for right belief and right behavior. Instead, we are confronted with the words of Jesus. And um, if you know the Jesus story at all, you might be familiar with the fact that as he's, he's um, led away to be executed by a sort of a collusion between Jewish religious authorities and Roman political power, Uh, He is put up on this cross, and on the cross he says these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this is a really profound moment in the Christian story, and one that is often brushed past very quickly on the way to sort of victory and triumph and, and all of that stuff. But I find myself coming back to this moment repeatedly, and I think there's something here which says that even that if we find the divine presence anywhere, it's in the midst of this kind of experience. In these words, we find that Jesus in this story is our companion in suffering. And we might even say that if God is somehow uniquely present in the Christ story, and whatever that might mean or however we might explain that, I don't know all, what we might want to say about that. I don't know what you might want to believe about that. But if we could say that, at the very least, God is somehow uniquely present in this story, then God knows the experience of what it feels like to feel abandoned by God. And that that sits actually at the center of the Christian story. God is in the place of abandonment, even abandonment, or what feels like abandonment by God. The divine is present right at the center of the experience of God's absence. Now, you might think that sounds a bit like nonsense or a bit weird or paradoxical or confusing or something, and and maybe it is. But here's what I think this understanding might offer to us. It offers to us this idea that Christianity is, in fact, at its heart, a protest against the vision of a God who is a being out there somewhere in the heavens turning his face away from our pain. Because in the Jesus story, the divine is, in fact, found in the one who cries out against that kind of God. And then we too, the implication here is that we too are asked whether we will join in this protest to protest 
against visions of God which are used to control and manipulate others. In fact, to protest against all things that do this, economic, political or religious power, that is used from above to manipulate and oppress and subjugate and dehumanize. And so to follow the story is to protest against visions of God, which makes God out to be some kind of puppet master deity who's up there in the heavens agreeing to or refusing to pull the puppet strings in our favor. So rather than seeing the death of Jesus as some blood sacrifice to appease God's wrath, I understand it, in this sense at least, as the realization that the divine is found present in the midst of my experience. There is a divine solidarity that does not turn away from my experience, even in the midst of great pain and suffering, but rather enters into it, becomes my companion in it, becomes present to me in it. There's this kind of notion sometimes within religious tradition and certainly within Christianity that God is so holy that he finds it unable to look upon our weakness and frailty and what many, uh, much of the tradition names as sin. But that in fact is not the story of Jesus at all. Because otherwise God becomes absent to us in these moments. Um, But in fact, in the Jesus story, what we find is that the divine becomes present to us in these moments most acutely, most profoundly, and becomes present to us even in death and tragedy and pain, even in suffering. Somehow in that place, we find a sense of divine solidarity. So what we see in this sense is that the full scope of human suffering, including death itself, is somehow found to be infused in some way with divine presence, even the experience of God-forsakenness, the experience of God's absence, the experience of uh, the protest that says, uh, where is God? Uh, Somehow in the story of Jesus, the paradoxical place in which we find the divine in this story of Easter. Now, the New Testament text, I think, then pushes this idea even further. And the authors of these texts claim that if God is anywhere, God is present in the face of the other. And Jesus' repeated and continued claim is that the divine is found present in the poor, in the suffering, in the prisoner, and with what he at one point refers to as the least of these. Which means if we want to know God in some way, we find ourselves seeing God actually in the face of those on the margins, on the edge, and on the outside those who are mistreated and who suffer under the weight of the system. And profoundly when that suffering is ours, when we are those who find ourselves under the feet of marginalization and empire and oppression, we hear this story of divine solidarity, a God who is there too. So returning to this German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann, he says this, the cross in the church symbolizes the contradiction which comes into the church from the God who is crucified outside. Every symbol points beyond itself to something else. Every symbol invites thought. The symbol of the cross in the church points to the God who is crucified not between two candles on an altar, but between two thieves in the place of the skull where the outcasts belong, outside the gates of the city. It does not invite thought, but a change of mind. It is a symbol which therefore leads out of the church and out of religious longing into the fellowship of the oppressed and abandoned. Now, for Maltman, 
this does not negate the notion that a church community is a valuable thing, but only if that church community understands that paradoxically church is a community that gathers to be reminded that God is present elsewhere. That gathering and that reminder is important, but it's not the goal. Religious institutions then are not the managers and gatekeepers of divine presence and divine solidarity. And whenever they think that they are, they have lost a sense, really, I think, of what the death of Jesus symbolizes within the Christian tradition. So, in all of this, we're saying a couple of things. That this death of Jesus moment is, in a sense, uh, not a rejection of the death of God, but a recognition that a certain kind of God does die here. That certain ideas of God die here. That the idea of the powerful tribal warrior deity dies here. That the view of God demanding blood dies here. That the view of God who can be used to oppress and manipulate and control and manage and subjugate people dies here. And what we also find is that in that death, uh, we find God to be present to us in a different, unique kind of way, a God that emerges in the midst of our experience rather than peering over the heavenly gates looking down upon it. A divine who is present to us in the faces of those whom we encounter in our day-to-day lives. And so the profound realisation of the New Testament is that when we encounter another person, we encounter in some way the face of God present to us and among us, and in particular when we encounter those persons who find themselves outside the gates, the gates that have been put up by the gatekeepers. When we find, uh, we encounter those people who find themselves for whatever reason pushed to the edges of community, pushed to the edges of society, we somehow find God present there when we encounter or enable ourselves to encounter and engage with those people who we would otherwise walk past and look beyond and exclude, that is somehow where we find the divine presence. So if we're going to talk about God, if we are going to theorize about what God is and about who God is and about where God is, God is, which is what theologians are excellent at doing, this is what we all spend our lives doing, postulating who is God and where is God and how is God. Well, if the answers we come up with are not grounded in, and and finding, finding their way into these kinds of experiences, then I don't think that's a view of God that is shaped in some way by the story of Jesus' death. Instead, Jesus' death invites us into a, an upside-down view of God and of where we find God and of what God is like. Okay, so there's a couple more things I want to say. And perhaps these are a little more personal, perhaps grounded just more specifically, because to this point the conversation has been kind of philosophical or abstract, I guess. Even as we've been talking about real human experience, we've been talking about real human experience in kind of theoretical ways. Um, So the first thing I want to say is, I guess in a sense how glad I was that I went through some measure of this reformulation of my view of God in the terms that I've been talking about today. Um, Glad that I went through that when I did. Uh, The last few years, for a couple of reasons in particular, have been um, shaped by some challenging and painful and and sad events in our lives. And having come through some of that, what I can say is is I'm kind of glad I'd already embarked on my journey of deconstruction, you know, before I hit this point in the road. 
because no longer seeing God as some grand puppet master in the sky manipulating every step. I think it allowed me to express my anger and my grief and my sadness without feeling like it was God who was to blame. And I'm not saying that those feelings would not be justified and that if that's the way you feel in the midst of that experience, uh, then that's totally valid. It just not my wasn't my experience. I think because of the way my own view of God had been so profoundly reshaped and somehow in the midst of those really challenging moments, I was able to acknowledge that somehow God was present for me and maybe most beautifully or most genuinely present for me and the generosity and the grace of friends and a family, as well as maybe in some kind of mysterious and mystical way um, that reminded me that we're not alone, that we're not abandoned to our pain. Um, and so if there's anything true to this Christian claim of divinity found in the Jesus story, then whoever or whatever God is, the hope is that this divine is present, even in the experience of feeling abandoned and alone and sad. It doesn't lessen the pain, I don't think, but and, and it doesn't explain it, but perhaps solidarity is the best thing available to us in these kinds of moments. The second thing I want to say and maybe this seems a bit odd given what I literally just said, is, but despite the, the challenging circumstances of the last few years, I still live a relatively privileged life, you know. I speak into this conversation as a cis straight white guy, pretty middle class, pretty comfortable really in general terms in my life. And so when I talk about finding the divine on the margins, you know, I'm generally not speaking about or talking about myself, not really, not most of the time. I'm talking about it from the perspective of one who is challenged by this notion of where the divine is present. This compels me to move beyond my zones of comfort and safety and recognize that something else is going on here. And I think that's a good conversation, but it is only one perspective. It's the conversation from one angle. And for many people, their experience is in some ways the opposite of this, which is the fact that, you know, the recognition that God is present and shows solidarity with the marginalized and oppressed and the suffering is more than just theory for them. It's more than just a conversation about others out there beyond. It's actually about them and their everyday reality. And so I think about those people who are so often excluded from, maybe it's the mainstream religious community of faith in the West in particular. So I think about the LGBTQI community. I, th I think about indigenous peoples and those who find themselves on the margins of Western worldview and a society shaped by European values. I think about those who, for whatever reason, do not fit the image of a successful and prosperous 21st century person in the West I think about those who are differently abled. I think about those who face serious mental health challenges that impair their acceptance in society. And I think about all of this and I think about the insight that if the divine is present anywhere, then God is present among them. And that this is where the story of the death of Jesus should take us. Okay, so that's how today's conversation has unfolded. And next time we're going to finish our three-part series on the death of Jesus by looking at the Easter story as the subversion of power. That's going to be next time on In The Shift. See you then.